This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "Gratitude and Grace." It was recorded November twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Historically, in the Buddhist tradition, there's been a running debate、uh, that's put in terms of the position of the gradual school and the position of the sudden school, and the debate is. Is enlightenment something that unfolds gradually during the course of a spiritual path or practice, or is it something that just happens spontaneously, suddenly? It stems really from two things the Buddha said. On the one hand, the Buddha said, "Each must work out their own salvation." In fact, these were his dying words. In other words, fundamentally, you can't rely on Some teacher, you can't rely on some god, you can't rely on some scripture or whatever. That the responsibility of the spiritual path is yours, and the responsibility of enlightenment is yours, and the responsibility of happiness is yours. On the other hand, the Buddha also said, "Enlightenment is nothing that can be attained by human hands," which sounds like a contradiction. There's a story that illustrates this from the Zen tradition, the Zen Buddhist tradition. And that is, a monk was meditating earnestly, the way we've been meditating,、uh, more earnestly for hours and hours, years and years. <clears throat> and another monk, I forgot—I always forget their names—but let's call him Matsu. Matsu came along, and he saw this poor monk meditating, and he said, "What are you doing?" And the monk said, "Well, I'm striving to attain Buddhahood." So Matsu picked up a brick and he started polishing, and the First monk looked at him. He said, "Well, what are you doing?" He said, "I'm going to turn this brick into a mirror." And the first monk says, "Well, no amount of polishing a brick is going to make it into a mirror." And Matsu says, "No amount of meditation is going to turn you into a Buddha." <laughs> this、uh, this problem, this debate, appears in many traditions under different names. In the Christian tradition, it's the problem of. Uh, faith and works. It's a long theological debate that's gone on in the Christian tradition ever since Augustine or before, ever since Paul. Actually, Paul said, "It's not by works that you're saved; it's by faith." And then, if we analyze it from a theologian's point of view, we run into these great philosophical problems. If God is omniscient and all-powerful, all、uh, everywhere knows what's going on. Everything happens by the will of God. Then, if you're saved, it must be God's will.、It、can't be your will. There must be an act of grace, God's grace, that saves you. But then, if this is true, what could you do to be saved? I mean, if it's not God's will that you're going to get saved, you're not going to get saved. And so, there's been a very strong tendency, on one hand, in the Christian Church,、uh, to、uh, take this point of view that everything's. Preordained, predestined. There's the elect; they're saved from the beginning of time, and then there's the damned, and they're damned from the beginning of time. This, of course, puts God in a tough position from our point of view.、Uh, where's this all this teaching of compassion and uh, uh, the practices that Jesus recommended? What's the point of all that? So this contradiction appears in, uh, under very different terms, but within the Christian tradition, is it is it worthwhile? Uh, being moral and being upright and being good, praying to God and all that. The same thing is true in the Sufi tradition. 
God is uh, all-powerful. Everything happens by the will of God. In fact, there is nothing but God. So, why do any practices? Why do zikr, the remembrance of God? Why keep the laws of Islam? And I think Hafiz, who's a Sufi poet, summed up the position of the spiritual seeker this way. He said, although it's true that union with God cannot be attained by any effort, strive, O heart, with all your might. Now, this seems like a, a, a contradiction. From an absolute point of view, from the point of view of enlightenment, it's no contradiction. From the point of view of enlightenment, there is no one seeking God. There is no one trying to become a Buddha. That is our delusion, that supposition, that experience of being an individual, separate I, self, entity, soul, whatever. And to realize that there is no one separate individual entity is enlightenment. That is gnosis. So from that position, the problem arises because it's based on a delusion. But that is the key delusion of our lives. That is, that delusion is the obstacle to our enlightenment. Now, this is uh, considered an ultimate teaching in all traditions. It's not, a, it's not a practical teaching for most people anyway. Shankara, the great uh, Hindu teacher, said, uh, the ultimate truth is there is no one in bondage and there's no one to be liberated. Just realize that. This is, I mentioned Krishnamurti, uh, Krishnamurti earlier, and this is what he would say. Don't do any of these practices, just realize that. Great. Who realized it here? <laughs> Nobody realized it, so uh, we do practices. But we can perhaps understand this from a relative point of view, from the point of view of delusion, from the point of view of seeking. And in fact, most teachings unfold from that point of view. And it's very important when you're considering mystical teaching to try and discern uh, from what point of view they're being taught. Not all teachings have the same degree of ultimacy. They range from very practical teachings, like, for instance, the instruction, the meditation instruction I gave you this morning, to teachings that uh, at least point to the ultimate, because actually the ultimate truth can never be put into words. But a teaching like Shankara's, that there is in fact no one in bondage and no one to be liberated, is a considered an ultimate teaching, not because that is the ultimate truth the way it's stated, but because it points very directly to an ultimate truth. And spiritual teachings in the various traditions are a mixture, a balance of these various teachings that are given at various times, uh, depending on what's appropriate to the situation. In a certain sense, uh, teachers like Krishnamurti, who insist on only giving the purest ultimate teachings, aren't very compassionate. They're not very useful for most people. 
And sometimes what appear to be very exoteric teachings are much more useful and therefore much more compassionate. So if we look at it from the point of view of the seeker, the teaching uh, to be effective has to come down to that point of view. I may say here that there is no one to be in bondage and there's no one to be liberated. And your, your unhappiness is all based on this delusion that there's some victim of the universe in there. But what good is going to do you? So let's assume that it is true that there's someone here who's suffering, who's in bondage. This is where we start on a spiritual path. We always start from where we are. Then how can we understand this teaching? Is there a way to understand this teaching? That ultimately, enlightenment is something that is uh, given by grace, that happens spontaneously. And yet, there are all these practices to do, seem to uh, require will, commitment, effort, and everything else. I think there is a way to understand this, through an analogy. Let's compare a spiritual seeker. Excuse me here. Could somebody uh, let the does the cat want in or out? No. <laughs> That's really God pretending to be a lost, lonely cat. <laughs> Let's compare a spiritual seeker. To someone who's been given charge of a cultivating a fruit tree, who's been given the role of a gardener. But we have to make one stipulation about this fruit tree. This fruit tree bears invisible fruit. You'll see why this is necessary later on. So it's a special fruit tree. And if we think of it this way, we can describe the stages of the spiritual path in terms of where do we take the ripen the fruit and bring it to fruition? And the very first uh, thing you have to do here is to receive the seed. You can't create a seed. So you have to get a seed from someplace. You receive the seed. This is, corresponds to the first stage of a spiritual path, which is an awakening of faith or an awakening of intuition. But somewhere in your life, uh, at some point in your life, all your habitual ways of trying to find happiness, your mundane ways. You think you're going to be happy if you just get the right job or the right mate or whatever it is. You realize that those aren't really going to work. That there's something more to life. There's something greater to life. Sometimes this happens out of a crisis. You might have a, a serious illness or someone close to you dies. You become aware of your own mortality, which gives you a good sense of, puts, uh, puts your uh, attempts to become happy in perspective. If you're very upset about the gasoline prices going up and you uh, have a near brush with death, the next time you go to the gas station, it won't be that upsetting to you. However it comes about, something happens in a life that this kind of a, a initial awakening, this initial uh, intuition that there's something beyond this mundane existence that we live. That's like receiving the seed. Then what do you do with that? 
especially in our culture, by the way, where we don't live in a sacred society. We don't know uh, just from birth and the way our parents behaved and the way our culture behaves uh, where to go. Sometimes we can spend a long time wondering what to do with the seed. But the next step is to find a place to plant it. Just walking around with a seed in your pocket isn't going to do much good. This corresponds to the second stage of a spiritual path, which is investigation of various teachings. Most people uh, get this intuition, get this uh, uh, little awakening, and then they come to a group like this. Maybe that's what some of you are doing here. And you'll go down to the Buddhist priory next weekend, and uh, you'll try out a Sufi camp or whatever. You're looking for the right spot to plant this seed. Even if you're in a sacred society, if you were in India, you would still go around looking for the right teacher. It probably wouldn't be a question to you, at least in the old days, of which path to go on, Hindu or Buddhist or whatever. But there'd be a lot of different teachers. And you're looking for the right teacher, the right teaching, or the right <coughs> form of a teaching that's going to be right for you. Now, then you find a spot. And the next step is to uh, prepare the soil. And this corresponds to uh, preparing yourself, which I call the stage of the unification of self. You can think of the soil here as your own soul, your own heart, your own being. And just as if you wanted to plant a seed in the ground, you have to turn over the ground, you have to break up all the clogs, get rid of all the little stones and stuff. So for a spiritual uh, practice to take root, to take hold, you really have to examine your life. What are the priorities in your life? You're going to have to give some things up. You have to look into the very fa various facets of your personality, how you're spending your time, often very practical considerations, often deeper considerations. What have you really been after in life? It's this churning that goes on inside. <clears throat> it's going to require a commitment. And, the, and when the soil is prepared and the seed is actually planted, that is when a commitment is made, a commitment to this path. It's reordering the priorities in your life so that you can follow this path. And this becomes the, the most important thing doesn't mean it's necessarily completely all-consuming. You might still have uh, a family and a job and so forth. But it's reordering those priorities. In a certain sense, from a psychological point of view, we could put it this way. It's, it's, re, it's shifting your identity from the kind of person you thought you were to a new person represented by this seed. The new person or persona or personality is that of a spiritual seeker. So may, you may have thought of yourself as a lawyer. That may have been your major identification in life with your career. Or you may have thought of yourself as a husband or a wife. And this is what has to be broken up somewhat. You may still perform that function. 
But this then no longer is the central focus of your identification. Your identification from here on in is to be a spiritual seeker. It's a temporary identity. It's an identity that's going to get you through the path. It's not your ultimate identity. So you plant the seed, and then what do you have to do? First of all, you just have to wait a little bit. It starts to grow. And then you have to uh, weed. You have to weed and water. When the, when the shoot starts to grow and it's very young, it's very tender, it's very delicate. And it can be crowded out by all this other stuff that's growing in that soil. And this corresponds to that stage of the purification of the mind. Which is really, uh, uh, the, the principle of this stage is detachment. All the distractions of your life, they don't just disappear when you decide to be a spiritual seeker. They continue. Their, their seeds are planted in the soil too. They continue to sprout and so forth. You have to make room for this little shoot to grow. So you have to pull up these little uh, desires and little distractions and, and so forth and so on. You're, in a certain sense, cleaning house, mentally. And you water, and the water is continuing to take in the teachings. Continuing to absorb the teachings which feed this growing shoot. And then the shoot grows larger and becomes a tree. And the next step is to prune it. This corresponds to the stage of the illumination of the heart. Where before you were uh, tending to the little weeds and the distractions, now it's really uh, pruning this tree down so that you concentrate the sap in it, the energy in it. So that it all goes to producing this invisible fruit. This corresponds to simplifying your life to whatever degree is practical or possible for you or to whatever degree you feel necessary. It sounds, from someone outside a spiritual path, to be a very severe and ascetic period, stage. In point of fact, it's not. This is the stage where blossoms start to appear. This is the stage, really, in a spiritual path where it gets easier. This is the stage where it becomes beautiful. This is why it's called the illumination of the heart. Things start to happen. Insights, visions, flashes of just the transparency of this world in which you see that divine beauty. You start to taste for yourself what all these mystics have been talking about. So before there's been actually a lot of work. All this breaking up the soil and weeding and watering and all that. And now you're more and more sitting back. You're watching this grow. You need some pruning here. Now this is why I said earlier, this fruit has to be invisible. Because if you were a, a gardener cultivating a plum tree out there, you would start to see the fruit come. But on a spiritual path, you don't. You see the blossoms. You see the leaves. You see all sorts of things sprouting. But you don't see that fruit that you're after. 
the fruit of enlightenment. And so now you have this big, beautiful fruit tree, all these leaves and blossoms and everything else. You've done everything you can do. You've done the weeding, you've done the pruning, you've watered and so forth, but nothing's happening. You're not getting enlightened. And this is a point where many people go through a period of tremendous despair, discouragement, exhaustion. They've done everything possible, everything there is to do. And yes, it's a wonderful tree, and it is a wonderful tree. But there's no fruit. You don't know what to do. If you're committed to that tree, though, you stay with it. And then one day you'll be sitting under that tree feeling sorry for yourself or whatever. And plop, a fruit hits you on the head. And you eat it, and that's it. I usually describe the spiritual path in seven stages, but you could actually tack on an eighth stage in this analogy. And that is, when you've eaten the fruit, what are you left with is a seed. And so you go around looking for someone to give the seed to. And so the whole cycle starts again in that sense. Now, if we look at this analogy, what's your relationship as a gardener to this tree? At every stage, there is something to be done. And yet at every stage, something's happening from the other side. You are given a seed. Now, you might not rec it, you know, uh, recognize it. Some seeds are very ugly to some people. A gnarled old, I don't know, peach pit or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you're given that seed, you might say, gee, what am I going to do with this and throw it away? You get the seed, and then you have to go find a place to plant it. Some people just stick the seed in their pocket. Later in life, they remember, yes, when I was a teenager, I was very religious. They never do anything with it. Then you find a place to plant it. And again, the place that you find to plant it, you don't create. You find a place to plant it. Then you have to do some work here. You have to break up that soil. Take out all the rocks and so forth. Then you plant that seed. But you don't make the seed grow. The seed grows on its own. And then you water it, and you pull up the weeds and so forth, but the sapling continues to grow on its own. You can't make that sapling grow. You can't make it grow any faster than it's going to grow. You don't know the secret of making it grow. You're the caretaker, the cultivator. And then it grows up to a mature tree. And boy, there's blossoms just start popping out all over the place. Usually for a spiritual seeker, you don't even really understand what these blossoms are until you see them. You read something about this from mystics. When you see them, you're amazed. It's wonderful. 
the fireworks display. But you don't do it. You just experience it. And then all this time, this invisible fruit is ripening. And you don't even see that. But you can't make that fruit uh, fall. You can't make it ripe. If you could even pick it before it was ripe, it would be bitter. In fact, we could probably extend the analogy to say there are people who do try to pick it before it's ripe and it turns bitter. It has to ripen on its own. All this is a gradual process leading up to the fullness of this fruit. And when it is ripe, it just falls. Just, and you don't know the moment it's going to fall. It's not a, ca a direct causal relationship. If I sit here and water this for 10 minutes at the exactly 10.01, it's going to fall. This is the relationship between what's gradual in a spiritual path, the part that you play, and the part that's played by the other side, God or Allah or the Tao or however you want to express it. The part of the growing of the seedling, the sap, the miracle of the budding, the ripening of the fruit, and the falling of the fruit. All that happens in its time. And so, really, a spiritual path is this relationship, back and forth. Now, this is a quite practical and, and good way of looking at the, uh, at the whole process. The whole point of having some sort of uh, description of stages on a spiritual path is so that, first of all, you recognize that the path does unfold in this temporal sense, in stages, there is work to be done. You can't just go sit around under any old tree and expect the fruit to drop on your head. You may possibly pick the right tree. In one out of a million cases, you may have just walking under that tree where the fruit drops. That has happened. People have been known to be just spontaneously enlightened. But don't count on it. And even if you are, if you haven't gone through the process of cultivating a tree, you don't know how to teach anybody else. So you, if you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to pass the seed on to anybody, you'd have to go back and do the whole process anyway. So it is useful to have a a schema of one sort or another worked out, and all traditions do. But there's also a great danger in this. And this is why we have the little story of Matsu, who says, tells the monk, you can't get enlightened by meditating. The great danger is we are given a program, and it seems like any other program that you might have, a program of education, if you wanted to be a physicist, you sign up here at the U of O, and you take your uh, introductory algebra courses first, then you go on to calculus, and you study Newtonian physics, and then you go on to quantum mechanics, and it seems to be this graduated thing. And the trouble with this is twofold here. One is, truly speaking, 
This very seeking, this very looking to the next step and the next stage is what's hiding the reality from you. It's what you've always been doing, and that's why you're always missing it. You're always looking to the next moment. I will be happy in the next moment. Tomorrow, I'll be happy when I get my new car. I'll be happy when I get my new job. I'll be happy when I uh, get my new mate. Or maybe it's in the very next moment. This room's a little chilly. I'll be happy when this guy gets finished talking and I can get some warm tea in me. <laughs> and then you'll get a little warm tea in you and you'll say, gee, I gotta take a pee. I'm kind of uncomfortable. I'll be happy when I can get in that bathroom and pee. It's always in the next moment. And so it tends to have a schema like this, tends to direct our attention away from where the fruit does in fact drop. And it's always right here and now. It's always in this moment. And it also tends to reinforce subtly this very sense of self, of I, of being an individual, that the whole path is really intended to undo. Because a spiritual path, uh, as you progress on a spiritual path, things do happen. The little seed does start to sprout. It does turn into a sapling. Leaves and buds do appear. And the gardener tends to take credit for that. See my work. See what I have done. Now, how could we guard against this pride that arises on a spiritual path, this sense of being goal-orientated, this sense of accomplishment. It's very difficult. Perhaps the best way that I know of anyway is by exercising one of the greatest of all spiritual virtues, and that's gratitude. To see at every stage and in every moment what comes to you by grace to recognize that from the very beginning starting with your own life right here and now regardless of whether you consider yourself a spiritual seeker or not start from zero assume a zero condition. It's phenomenal that anything's here. It's an absolute miracle that your breath comes and goes. That there's this color and shapes and form. That there are these sensations. They all arise whether you want them to or not. Sounds. Cats wanting to come in and go out. Cats pooping on the rug, which happened to us last night. It's an absolute miracle. What isn't a miracle? We choose none of it. None of it. The blood circulates. The cells reproduce. The thoughts come and go. 
thoughts are really miraculous. Watch now, what are thoughts? I mean, my gosh. Where are they? Where do they come from? Where do they go? What are they made of? Absolutely astonishing. And then on a spiritual path. As you progress on a spiritual path, quote, unquote, who is really progressing? You will find that the essence of a spiritual path is insight. And each little insight comes like that invisible fruit. It's never what you think it's going to be. People sit down in their meditation pillows and they have some idea of what's supposed to happen. And they struggle and fight with themselves about making that mind shut up or whatever they think is supposed to happen. And then either, either in a rather sudden flash, they get an insight into the workings of the mind, or something creeps up on them from behind gradually, but it sort of overtakes them. They begin just to realize in their daily functioning, the mind's become much more aware, it's become much more quiet, it's become much more peaceful. Well, they were looking for angels to appear in something, but this is the miracle. And then, later on a spiritual path, when you do experience the illuminations of the heart, love just comes from no place. You might have been spending half the energy on a spiritual path trying to love your neighbor, as Jesus said. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Battling with yourself, beating yourself over the head because you're too selfish. wrestling with your own motivations and so forth, and one day you just look at somebody and you love them. You didn't do it. Everything that happens to us on a spiritual path, if we take the attitude that it's something to be grateful for, if we give up the attitude, surrender the attitude that it's something we deserve, I've meditated 10 years and I haven't had enlightenment yet. What's the matter with God? <laughs> and if we start being grateful for each moment of meditation, if we start being grateful just for the opportunity to practice love and compassion, then we see more and more that it doesn't happen by our will. We start to see more and more, none of it happens by our will. Everything we thought did happen by our will, even that stuff doesn't happen by our will. And the more we understand that, the more grateful we are, the more beautiful it all is. The more we really start to understand the miracle of the world, beyond whether you like cat poop or not. I don't like cat poop much, frankly. <laughs> but that's, that's a little surface uh, judgment there. It's almost irrelevant. I have a friend who says things like, uh, oh, I don't know, a piece of toast uh, falls in a greasy sink, and she says, oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> that's not disgusting. 
There are some things that get towards disgusting. <laughs> Children starving in Bangladesh, that is disgusting. The toast gets a little, uh, falls on the floor, and that's not disgusting. But even that, even beyond the worst tragedies we can think of, the worst that can happen to us, and this is what we have to face on a spiritual path. We can't pretend, you know, that uh, reality isn't what it is. We don't find happiness by closing ourselves off to truth. We find it by finding the, the bottom of reality, going down to the depths of it. And this is why saints talk about it. They're grateful for suffering. They're grateful for persecution. For whatever happens, the underlying fundamental realization is that it's all a miracle from the get-go. And everything else is stacked on top of it. With a certain grade of importance. So yeah, I cleaned up the cat poop so you people wouldn't have to sit in the cat poop today. I mean, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> So I think the anecdote to uh, the anecdote to uh, pride, which develops on a spiritual path, when you take a spiritual path as something that's progressive, and when you start to uh, see that a spiritual path does pay off, quote unquote, in a certain sense, remember that virtue of gratitude, that, and remember that fundamental uh, nature of all things is to be spontaneous and divine. Anyway, I hope this uh, at least provides some way of thinking of a spiritual path and the problems of a spiritual path and this uh, dual nature of a spiritual path. But there is a relative sense of work to be done, a lot of work to be done. But in the other sense, it is all a matter of grace, spontaneity. Are there any uh, questions or comments or experiences to share? Yes. Um, one is you had said about the opportunity um, to meditate, that that is, a, that is something to be grateful for. Um, a, um, a wise uh, friend of mine once uh, told me in my um, attempts at meditation, my failures in attempting, that just the desire is the, is the work of God, and that that um, is also something to be grateful for. So I'd like to share that. Um, and the other thing is that it's funny you talk about the seed, because my reflection for yesterday was... Um, from the book I was telling you about that I just got on Master, on Master Eckhart. And it says, and I don't think I have it exactly right, but it says, I am a seed from God. Master Eckhart was a uh, Dominican priest in the Middle Ages, for those who don't know, a mystic. And, it's, and it says, I am a seed from God. A seed from a palm tree becomes a palm. A seed from a hazelnut tree becomes a hazelnut. A seed from God becomes God. Beautifully put. 
beautifully put. The uh, uh, Buddhist and Hindu traditions often begin with a description of the preciousness of this human life. We don't find this particular form in the West because they have the idea of reincarnation. And uh, they try to develop this attitude of gratitude right from the beginning. And one of my favorites is uh, the description that the chances of being born in a human form are, are the chances equivalent to this. If you took a uh, uh, life preserver and you threw it in the middle of the ocean and a sea turtle just happened to surface in that, that would be, that is the chances of being born in human form. Now, of course, they're not trying to figure out some sort of mathematical probability. The point, though, is to give you a sense of appreciation for this form you find yourself in. Just right now, without having done anything, we're constantly finding ourselves in this human form, wherever we are. We're constantly like that little sea turtle popping up in the midst of this lifesaver, life preserver right out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. When you describe that um, moment of despair or giving up that preceded the, the uh, fruit dropping on your head, um, I just found myself wondering if that is consistent with the attitude of gratitude. In other words, when that happens, is that a, is that a moment when you're you you said, "Oh well, I you know I've been grateful and I you know I've, I've experienced all this, but it doesn't help." And you know, when when you give up like that. Does gratitude go out the window, too? Yes. <laughs> uh, because even the idea that you are grateful mm -hmm. to something is based on a division, a separation. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a provisional virtue. Mm -hmm. uh, true gratitude is no sense of being grateful. There's no one to be grateful to. Who are you going to be grateful to? Exactly. This is why Meister Eckhart, speaking of Meister Eckhart, describes the whole practice of, uh, in, in Christianity of doing the will of God. He said that, uh, and he describes it as unfolding in stages. He says, but ultimately, doing uh, the perfect will of God, when you are performing God's will perfectly, there's no sense of performing God's will. Because in order to have a sense that you're performing God's will, you have to have a sense of being separate from God. You have to recognize that there are two wills and that you're not doing your will, but you're doing God's will. But this is a division between I and other, subject and object, self and God. So truly doing God's will, there's no sense of doing God's will at all. There's no sense of doing anyone's will. Which is why this whole theology of grace is exactly what the Buddhists say when they say the true nature of things is just spontaneous radiance, effortlessness. You see what I mean? said in very different terms, but it's getting at the same thing. The, the, the fact of the matter is, it is all God's will anyway. It's only that we don't see it. The fact of the matter is, it's all the spontaneous arisings of Buddha nature, but we don't see it. This thing's the exact same thing. Very different language, but the essence is the same. The, this stage of... Uh, uh, just before enlightenment, which uh, I call the stage of ex exhaustion, when nothing works anymore. Uh, all the virtues go. Everything goes. Because what, what goes is uh, there's nothing more to be done. 
So even in the, in the highest stages, there's this little exercise of will. I'm going to do something to get enlightened, you say. You have to really be convinced that that isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. And it requires the complete exhaustion of that will. And that means, well, there's literally, I mean, it's just totally exhausted. Not only, it also requires, by the way, not only the exhaustion of that effort, but it requires you having burned all your bridges. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work, you know, if you go on a spiritual path for five years and you think, well, this isn't getting me anywhere. I think I'll go back to school and, you know, I'll become an engineer and get rich and go pursue a worldly life. That's not going to, you know, it has to be the point where there's no world to go back to. There's no thought of doing something else. You put all your energy into this one thing. This is what the pruning is about, you know what I mean? All the sap is concentrated. There's no going back. And then when you can't go forward, then you're really between a rock and a hard place. It's, it's almost like this. I, I say this very metaphorically. It's almost like God wants you to be enlightened, see? And he, he's sitting up there with that fruit, and he wants to pop it on your head, but you keep dodging around. So he's got to get you to stand still for a moment. And the whole spiritual path is to get you to stand still. Once he's got you to stand still, bop, he bops you on the head. Somebody else is, yeah. I don't know what enlightenment is. <laughs> it's realizing that there's no one to be enlightened. That's one answer. Uh, that's, in fact, the Buddha's answer. Very interesting. He said, uh, and one of the most profound Buddha sutras, uh, he's having a discuss discussion with his disciple, I think it's Shibuti. And Shibuti's questioning about the, the ultimate truths of Buddhism and their relation to, to uh, relative truths. And this is in the Mahayana tradition, and one of the most um, important aspects of my Mahayana tradition is the Bodhisattva vow. And that is that every spiritual seeker in that tradition takes this vow not to accept final individual enlightenment in nirvana, not to enter nirvana finally until all beings have been liberated, until all beings enter nirvana. And in the terms of that cosmology, it means you keep reincarnating and coming back trying to help, you know, all sentient beings. And so the Buddha and Shibuti are talking about this, and the Buddha's affirming this vow is absolutely necessary. This is, you know, um, by the way, notice the point of this vow is to, uh, so you stop thinking of enlightenment as something you're going to get for yourself. It puts the emphasis on selflessness rather than selfishness. But then the Buddha finally says, but he says, but if the truth were known, Shibuti, there are no sentient beings to be delivered. Again, we run across the same paradox. You take a vow to deliver all sentient beings, but there are no sentient beings. By taking a vow to deliver all sentient beings, you discover there are no sentient beings, which is enlightenment. And I will, I will put it in less philosophical terms, I'll put it in my terms. Everybody's born seeking something, very different things. But if you go around and ask people, what do they want? They'll all tell you they want to be happy, and then they'll all tell you what they think is going to make them happy. They're always seeking. From one moment to another, everybody's seeking. And enlightenment is when seeking ends. When you're no longer seeking happiness. Because happiness isn't something to find anywhere. It's already here. Any other questions or comments? 
Oh, yes, go ahead. About the idea of being enlightened, I thought that it would be, I mean, you would still be subject to the same emotions that we all are. Wouldn't you? You would, you would be angry, you would be, uh, whatever, sad <laughs> at times. And uh, Let's put it this way. Uh, you see how that you phrased it. <clears throat> Being enlightened, you would still be subject to all these emotions. Mm -hmm. Being enlightened, enlightened, these emotions arise, but there's no one subject to them. You see what I mean? Our, our very use of language makes it almost impossible to talk about enlightenment because we're always talking about, well, so-and-so, someone's enlightened. Well, no one's enlightened. I mean, we continue to think there's someone in there. But, but certainly, anger arises, sadness arises, emotions arise, thoughts arise. There are some emotions that I call echo emotions that just evaporate because they were based on absolutely nothing. They're, you might think of them as neurotic emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, loneliness. It's impossible to be lonely, really. Because being lonely depends on the idea that there's someone out there, but there's no one out there, and there's no one in here, it's just all this, who's to be lonely for, you see what I mean? Um, uh, anxiety, as opposed to fear, direct biological fear. If a, if you're walking along and a, a, a vicious dog jumps out, you have a reaction of adrenaline and everything else, do you know what I mean? That's, but anxiety about the future, about death, or about those sorts of things, that's a, what I call an echo emotion. Uh, but emotions, emotions that are, you know, biologically based emotions that, that we're thankful that we have, gra grateful that we have, uh, because if you had no biological fear, uh, the human race wouldn't have survived to this day. It's also one other thing to say about this, and this is very hard to put. In a way, you could say, no fear arises, no sadness arises, and so forth, in the sense that the same phenomenon arises, but it's not thought of or judged as fear or sadness or this or that in its primary nature. It's just energy, if you like. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how to paraphrase it, but I think I do. I'll give you one example that most of you have at least have probably heard about if you haven't actually experienced, and that is sometime when you're really afraid for your life. Uh, you can realize that fe what suddenly fear is a tremendous ally and you wouldn't be without it. For instance, in combat, and I speak personally from personal experience, but it might be in a dangerous situation, in a car accident or something, that you suddenly... Uh, your senses all get alert, you have twice the strength you've had before. I've talked about this before, talk about a perfectly clear mind. I mean, all distractions just absolutely vanish. Do you know what I mean? And, and this is fear. Now, it's fear, but you're not afraid of that fear. This fear is something you're grateful for. You appreciate. You wouldn't be without it. Because you'd be stumbling around on a battlefield wondering, you know, worrying about your rent or something like that. <laughs> So this is what I mean. It's not, 
it's a great mistake to think that enlightenment is something where uh, phenomena vanish in the in the in the crude way we you know think of phenomena. I mean, it's some sort of vacuum, void, and and particularly in the Buddhist tradition where it's often mistaken for this, they go out of their way to say this because they have this whole concept of shunyata, emptiness, and so forth, and people tend to think, well, there must be some sort of void. And Hui Ning, who was the father of Zen, described it this way. He said, it'd be a greatest mistake to think when I talk about the void, I'm thinking I'm talking about a vacuity. He says, I'm talking about the void that's so vast that it contains all the stars and mountains and trees and rivers and good people and bad people and, you know, good actions and bad actions. And he goes on for like three pages listing everything you can think of uh, that is in this void. This be like similar, like could you describe this as sort of like an ego reduction or, or something like that? Or? Not an ego reduction. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes uh, there's a good use, the, the word ego has its uses. I don't use it that often because I found people start thinking about their ego like something like a wart on their nose, that they're going to get rid of their <laughs> ego, you know, and they're somehow, somehow going to get rid of it. But you could put it this way. Uh, let's use another analogy. Um, supposing you're a psychologist and I come to you and I say, uh, I'm having trouble with this little uh, green devil that rides in my shoulder and um, he won't shut up. Now, how, how can I, you're a psychologist, how can you make green devils be quiet? And he keeps me up at night, right? Now, I come to you with a problem. The green devil's keeping me up at night. This is the, the terms in which I phrase this problem. From your point of view as a psychologist, you know that there is no solution to the problem on the level of green devils shutting up or not. The solution to the problem is for me to realize there is no green devil on my shoulder, right? Maybe. <laughs> well, I, I guess so. for the sake of the analogy, let's, yeah. okay? So, uh, in a certain sense, we're talking different languages and we're uh, working across purposes in this therapy. And this is often what a spiritual path is like. Uh, so it's not a, a reduction of the little green uh, devil on your shoulder. It's simply the realization there is no little green devil on the shoulder, and there never really has been. So you could say enlightenment, if you want to use the term ego, it's the realization that there really isn't some real entity called ego, some I. And really, I like to use something more concrete, like that experience, that gut experience of I. That experience isn't really a a thing, a substance, anything in there. One last way of describing a traditional, uh, in many traditions, uh, it's like a firebrand or a sparkler, if you remember from when you're a kid on the 4th of July, or maybe it's an adult on the 4th of July, when it's very dark and you go out and you whirl one around, and if you do it at a very steady speed, you make it look like there's a circle there, a fire, a circle of fire in the air, you know? There isn't a circle of fire in the air. It's this activity that sets up this pattern that looks like there's actually something there. But there, you know, you can't grab that band of fire and carry it around and take it down to the pawn shop and, you know, you see what I mean? Well, that's a little bit how uh, the self is sometimes described. We mistake this activity for a something, but it's just activity. It's just phenomena arising and passing in consciousness. So there's nothing... Uh, when, when we uh, view our, our situation in the world all from the point of view of self, defending the self, enhancing the self, and all that, there's really nothing in there to defend, and there's nothing in there to enhance. 
And so all this activity is rather futile and causes us tremendous suffering. Good questions, very good questions, and very difficult to answer. And the way you get uh, uh, the, the true answer finally is find out for yourself. You never, you know, you get guides and hints and tips and so forth from teachers and teachings. But you know, it's like Shankara said: uh, you've you've heard the teachings from the your lips of your guru, you've read the scriptures, but only you yourself can know whether you're liberated or not. Okay, why don't we uh, take a break here?